0: That's a dangerous song, isn't it? Stop and think about what you just asked God to do. If you ever find yourself at a point where you're not sure what to pray, and you, you kind of hit a wall, start with what you just did right there. God, take my hands, the things I'm going to do today with these hands, and make them for you. My, my mouth, the words I'm about to say, the air that fills my lungs. You go down through that list, God will hear that every time. Because you're just being really honest with them, and you're just saying, I'm just putting it out there, Father, for you to use. I'm going to ask you to go to Mark chapter 12 this morning, and we'll get to see an example of somebody who's all in, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be down in verse 38, but before we do that, I want to start out with uh second corinthians you'll see it up on the screen in just a moment so if you're going to mark chapter 12 you're going to also want to put a finger or maybe a a bookmark in second corinthians and you're going to see kind of a new definition of grace before we put that verse up on the screen somebody give me their definition of grace who's got a a good short definition of it a gift gift, yep unmerited favor favor, good two-word description that's exactly right god giving us something that we didn't deserve. So that's a short definition of grace. We understand that God has put something on us that he's extended that we didn't do anything to earn. So when we get into Scripture, especially in 2 Corinthians, and we start looking at definitions of grace, all of a sudden Paul gives us a new way to understand grace. I want you to look on the screen with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. He says this, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I don't know if you ever thought about money being related to grace, but we're going to be talking about money this morning, all right? So everybody just take a big cleansing breath now that it's out on the table, right? (sighs) Now, is Paul like crazy combining the thought of grace? You know, Christians really cheer big at grace, right? Unmerited favor, yeah, we're all in. Forgiveness of our sins, absolutely tremendous. And, And then when we hear about the subject of money in church, we tend to want to just like sit on our hands, right? So what does Paul do? A radical thinker, he brings grace and giving together, because grace within giving is a measure of our heart towards Christ. It's a component of grace you rarely hear anybody ever speak about. You begin to realize all of a sudden we're not talking about a bank balance; we're talking about something that's a heart issue. So, grace in relation to money has to do with this: how we give really reveals our heart. How we give reveals our heart. Let me give you an example of that, real world stuff. In the United States of America, I understand in the typical Bible church, most churches experience about 8 to 12% of the people who attend the church actively giving to the church. Yeah, it's really that low, 8 to 12% of individuals. However, I don't think it's a money issue in terms of available funds. Because I also understand that among the most typical American families, most Americans spend more money on carry out pizza than they do in giving money to the church, right? So what we're really talking about is a heart issue. It says more about priorities than anything else. Well, God wants to help us understand that when he begins calling giving a grace. And we get an example of that from Mark chapter 12 this morning. So what I'd like to do is just dive with you into the story. And here's the background on it in verse 38, chapter 12. What you find is Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's going to be arrested on Thursday night. But this is Wednesday when you open up Mark chapter 12. And it's Passover week and there's lots of people in town, and Jesus goes to the temple, and he's in the courtyard of the Gentiles, meaning the Greeks and the Jews can mingle together, and he begins teaching, and it's a really large public setting, and lots of people are gathered, and this is what we're told from Mark that he says Jesus said. Verse 38, in his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. If you didn't know this already, Jesus has a zero tolerance for frauds and posers. And he's at the temple and it's Passover week. And there's individuals walking around as though they're holy with these really really long robes on and jesus says beware of those individuals what's he talking about well the scribes and think modern day lawyers the scribes were lawyers of jesus day except they were lawyers of god's law they really understood the law well These individuals looked back at the ancients, meaning like the times of Moses and Joshua and Daniel, and and they looked at the writings that God gave specifically for individuals who were to act as religious leaders for the people, and they saw that those individuals were wearing long robes. They, They came down to like their knees. Well, those individuals devised the thought that if, if the robes were longer and people thought of them as holy, they'd think of us as really holy. So over the centuries, the robes got longer and longer. They were ridiculously long. So these guys were like tripping on them. Jesus said they like to wear those long robes because they're walking through the temple, making people think like, hey, look at us. We're really, really holy. Jesus says beware of those individuals because they devour widows' houses. God always tells the truth, right, church? Okay, like 10 of you believe that. God always tells the truth, right? Okay, God always tells the truth. God always tells the truth about us. And God says, watch out. These guys consume widows. Now, the opposite thought is true when you look back at the Old Testament. And God said, I want you to care for the widows. Look with me on the screen. James 1, 27 is just a reflection of the Old Testament. It says this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Jesus says, those guys, they're going to receive a greater condemnation. In Mark 12, they're they're putting on holiness, but they're devouring widows' houses. So Jesus goes one step further. He says, I'll take care of those guys. That is not a good day when the God of the universe, who's going to sit on the white throne, says, Their payday their pay is coming. They're going to get what's coming to them. Why is he referring to these individuals? Because he's exposing the greedy for what they are. He's about to contrast it with someone who's not greedy. You know somebody who's a taker in your life? Always taking, never giving. That's what Jesus is referring to, these individuals who are takers. Here's the background. Scribes, the lawyers of that day, they served as the estate planners of the first century. So when a man died and he left his household to his widow, the responsibility of the scribes was to go into the home and help the widows figure out how to apportion out the remaining funds that they had, except they charged a really exorbitant fee to do it. And some of the widows couldn't even pay the fee. So what the estate planners would do, these scribes, these legal specialists, is they would take their house in pledge so that when the widow died, the fees, their legal fees would be paid by the contents of the home and the house itself, meaning that the scribes would inherit everything that the widows owned. And Jesus said, watch out for those guys. They're faking holiness. They want people to think they're holy, but they're devouring widows' homes. And then he leaves that setting and he goes into the treasury. Go with me to verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. He's going to begin contrasting the greedy image that we just saw. So he's left the courtyard where all the Gentiles were at and all the Jews and Greeks intermingled. And he goes into the treasury setting where these offering boxes are set up. They had offering boxes like we have offering boxes on the wall. They had offering boxes stacked across the floor. There were 13 of them. And individuals could put money in the boxes based on what they wanted to support. So check this. God is looking at the offering box. But he's watching the people who are going to the offering box to put money in it. And he's observing them really, really close, looking at the individuals. And Mark says the rich are putting in large sums. Now, there's no condemnation there. He's just saying they're not being stingy. They have a lot, so they give a lot. But in the first century, prosperity was linked with righteousness. Individuals thought, well, if I'm really, really, really prosperous, that must mean God really, 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 really likes me. So I'm going to put that on display. I want everybody to see that God really likes me. But what does that mean to someone who's not really successful? and can't give like that. Well, that kind of sets the stage for this really poor woman who doesn't have $5. Go with me into the next verse, 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. So she's completely unnoticed by anybody else. She's not out there with the big long robes, but she's seen by God. And she becomes the focal point of this discussion on prosperity. Remember, the widows are being devoured, right? They're caught up in this system. People are taking what they have. There's severe abuse going on. And we're told that Jesus is watching her, and she puts these two small coins into one of the offering boxes. The, the two small coins in the Greek language is lepta, and it literally means a one-sixty-fourth of a denarii. That may cause your eyes to glaze over, but here's a, a denarii is a day's wages, right? So if you like earn ten bucks a day, an hour. If you earn ten bucks an hour and you work an eight-hour day, you got eighty bucks at the end of the day. One sixty-fourth of that is a dollar twenty-five, right? So she's got one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, meaning this little penny, this little two cents, and she drops it in the box. Verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, "Truly I say to you." this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury now the disciples are not with him for whatever reason right he's sitting by himself and he wants them to put their eyes on what he's seeing so he says truly i say to you i love it when jesus talks that way he's saying listen up pay attention to what you're about to see it's not like everything else is untrue but he's saying here's truth i'm about to communicate something that's countercultural." My reason for calling you over here is I want you to see this woman. She just put more in the offering box than everyone else. Comparatively, comparatively God's saying her gift is greater. She's all in. Do you notice that Jesus is not talking about the amount? Right? He's talking about the heart. Grace giving. Giving from the heart. He's referring to what her heart looks like. This poor woman, verse 43, put in more than all the contributors. Why? Because they gave out of their prosperity. Go with me to verse 44. For they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live in, live on. You ever consider yourself to be a prosperous person? You live in the United States of America. I'm here to tell you today, you are prosperous. Compared to world standards, you really need a perspective check if you think that you're poor. We're told in verse 44, they put in out of their surplus. Surplus is the word prosperity in the Greek language. What does that look like today? If you have assets in your home, right now, if each adult in your home is worth at least $2,200 dollars, meaning maybe if there's two adults, you got $4,400 for your household, you're in the top 50% of the world's population. If you have assets in excess of $61,000, you're in the top 10% of the world's population. All of a sudden you start walking a little taller, don't you, right? Start feeling like maybe I'm a little better off than I thought I was. If you've traveled the world and you've been to third world countries like I have, and you've seen people living in absolute poverty, You understand how prosperous we are in North America. People in North America and Europe combined hold 90% of the world's wealth. We are way more prosperous than we realize. So be really grateful for where you live because it directly correlates to what you have. This prosperity that you and I enjoy, it is a matter of calling. So we really have to have the right perspective Let me give you a verse that's a little bit longer verse, but it really puts things in perspective for us. Look with me on the screen at James, and James begins to speak in chapter 1 about money. He says, but let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and his flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I don't know if you knew this, but 29 billionaires died in the last 365 days here on planet Earth. Of the 1,810 billionaires on our planet, 29 of them went to stand before their maker within the last 365 days. Not because of accidents, they just aged out, right? like the grass that withers and fades away. We all will stand before our maker one day. Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going out. That puts things in perspective. So Jesus is looking at this woman, and he says she's got a heart like a billionaire. She's giving enormous quantities of money. She's like billionaire status. Verse 44, she put in all she owned, all she had to live on i got to be honest with you, church, I have never, ever given like that. I, I mean, I can, if you grew up in Sunday school, you can relate to this. Maybe you grew up in church. I can remember when I was a child, my mom giving me like a quarter to put in the offering plate when the plate went by, right? And, and you didn't have anything else. So if you're given at that point, you're given everything you have. So, you know, you can't wait as a child to get the quarter out of your pocket and put it in. You're all grins and all giddy. You're given everything you got, but just somebody else gave it to you. But as an adult, to give everything I own, I I can't say that I've ever done that. Here's the bigger deal for me that God knows how much she gave and God knows how much she owns tells me something. He's aware of what you and I possess this morning. He's absolutely aware of it. And his measure of generosity is based on her heart, based on her heart commitment. So God's saying, I know what you have. And I know how you use it. And it's not the portion that I measure, it's the proportion in relation to what I've already given to you. He said the prosperous, they just gave out of their superabundance. You might be looking at passages like this, and you might be thinking, maybe you've read it in the past, and you're thinking, what? It almost looks like God's not in favor of savings accounts. Is is that what's going on here? Typically you hear people say when they look at that, wow, that's how we ought to give, empty out the bank accounts. Well, I'm here to tell you that is not a biblical view. That is not what God says. This woman is in a system. The widows are being devoured by the system. They're being consumed and they're losing everything that they have. Giving, biblical giving, is not emptying your bank accounts and then living destitute. Because then you've got to be dependent upon somebody else, right? This is just evidence of what a corrupt legal system looks like when you look at that story. Any system that takes the last coin from a widow is a false system. So what do we understand about the Bible? First of all, understand savings is encouraged by God. Look with me on the screen. Proverbs 21.20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. One step further, Personal provision is your responsibility. God says it this way. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that one should make you step back and go, whoa, that's some pretty strong language. Worse than an unbeliever. Prosperity, the proper distribution of the prosperity that God has given to us, that's his method of advancing the kingdom. So check this, the prosperity that we enjoy, just by being American citizens, the prosperity that we enjoy gives us awesome opportunity. We have great opportunity, but we also have great responsibility, do we not? Like participation here, okay? We we do, we have really huge responsibility. So God calls us rich. We're rich just by the fact that we live where we live. And he has special instructions to us. Look, he singles us out in First Timothy 6.18. S- chapter 6, he's beginning to talk about rich people. And you are one, whether you think you are or not. First Timothy chapter 6 says this, instruct them, those who are rich in this world, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Uh, what do i understand then about biblical giving and we're done with the mark story right but i want you to go to second corinthians i asked you to stick your finger in there we're going to go over and look closely at what does it mean to do giving according to what the bible standards are here's 101 level stuff 101 is this we advance the work of jesus by all means necessary right that's what biblical giving is. We're advancing the work of Jesus. Primarily, his work takes place through his church. There are many, many good parachurch organizations. I used to be part of one. But God says, I want you to support the work of the church so that I can expand the kingdom. That's 101 level. And here's the second 101 level. We get to be stewards of all that God has trusted us with. So we get an example in 2 Corinthians. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, is trying to figure things out they're growing in their faith, but they don't have it all down. So Paul begins talking about the church at Macedonia, because the church at Macedonia, they're doing things really, really good. They've got it down. So Paul, look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3 begins talking about the Macedonian church. And he says this, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, meaning giving, right? And they did not do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. He's just saying this, these individuals, they're seeking God's heart about the right amount. They're going to God asking for his will. They're doing it really, really well. Instead of going with their personal gut feeling, they're saying, God, what do you want us to do? That's when he translates over to the verse we started with this morning. Now go back on the screen with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. This is where we started. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, we've already said this morning that how we give reveals our heart, right? The Bible is very, very clear That when we give, it's not done in a vacuum. It's not just one of the things we do. It actually is intertwined with the work of God's grace within us. Meaning your giving, any giving you do this morning, it's not isolated from the other qualities that are within you. Here's how Paul starts out. Paul affirms them. Hey, you guys are doing great. You're excelling in these other areas. You're doing really well in doctrine. You're doing really well in your knowledge of Jesus. Even your faith is growing, even to the degree that you're becoming eager about it. If somebody is growing in Christ that way, would you not say that's the work of God in their life? It's true, right? Who here today would say that I'm further along in my walk with Christ than I was a year ago at this time? Okay? All right, I'm gonna gonna use that as an indictment against you guys, right? Okay? I'll be nice about it. I have to do this to myself. If, if we're growing in our knowledge of who we are before God, if we're increasing in faith, if we have a greater understanding of doctrine, if God's word is making more and more sense to us, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, so if you're looking around thinking, how come I don't see more evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Just look within yourself and say, am I increasing in these capacities? God says, yeah, if you're increasing in those capacities, you need to be increasing in another capacity, which is increasing in your giving because that's maturity, right? He's linking all of them together. So Paul's argument is this, don't give contrary to the other evidences of your walk with Jesus. In other words, you've got to give consistent with the evidence that's already there. If you're growing in these other areas, you've got to be growing in this. Why? Because giving is proof of, of your love. Watch what Paul says. I am not speaking this as a command. 2 Corinthians 8 7. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So Paul's telling us this giving is not a command. Well, have you ever been in a church setting where you're told you don't have to give? That seems like it's contrary to everything that people are typically raised with. But Paul's saying, I want to underline, underline, underline. There's a fundamental principle in your relationship to Jesus. Your giving to Jesus is completely voluntary, it's free will. Because everything else about your relationship with Jesus is voluntary. You made a decision to follow him. So God says, I don't want you giving as though you're under compulsion, I want you to do it out of joy. Now, I've heard people say this, Mark, like, aren't you afraid if you tell people that they're going to stop giving, right? No, because the truth will set you free, right? Okay, if the truth will set you free, you need to know God's word because God included this in his word. So what does that mean about how we give? Well, God wants you to give out of joy. So how do you find the right amount? Wouldn't it be great if God would give us like a flow chart? Your assets are here and here, and so therefore you're going to give this amount. He doesn't do that god is never going to send you a bill right because he wants you to not give out a compulsion but to give out a joy so there's two criteria by which you give you get to see it on the screen and it's also in your notes this morning god says when you give do it according to the measure of these two things and both of them are based on your heart by the ability in proportion to the gift that that's a match for second corinthians eight twelve. 2 Corinthians 8.12, we'll touch on that in just a moment. So by the ability and proportion to the gift and by the character of the person who's doing the giving. Can I back that up from Scripture? Look with me on the screen. 2 Corinthians 9.7, each man should give what he has decided to give in his heart. Meaning, where's your heart at on the issue? You and God, in relationship with Him, as a maturing believer, God, what do you want me to do? That's just like the church at Macedonia. They didn't do it like we thought they were going to do it. They, They went to God first and they asked for His will. That's what we're told right there is a match in 2 Corinthians 9. Each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give. Based on that, Paul steps it up a notch and he writes it this way, the rest of the verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So once you've landed on what you believe that God has committed you to, you don't want to hold it back and say, I'm reluctant about this, but you also don't want to be on the side of saying, oh man, I feel compelled like I have to do this. God said, don't go that way. I want you to do it as a cheerful giver, I'm, I'm about done. we got like three minutes left, but I just want you to see a verse that amplifies this from the Old Testament, especially if you're really hung up on the Old Testament principle of how they used to give at that period of time through the tithing system. When you look back at the writings of David, and David talked about how he gave to God, I want you to see an example of what a heart completely sold out to God looks like. Look with me on the screen at 2nd, or 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and verse 17. David said, since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, doing a heart thing, right? Not the integrity of my wallet, not the integrity of my bank account. In the integrity of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willing to you also. David's saying, this is a hard issue, and it's all about how willing I am. He's talking about joy. So what does joyful, cheerful giving look like? Well, we've already said you can't give cheerfully if you're feeling like you're under compulsion. So Scripture says it this way, 2 Corinthians on the screen, chapter 8 and verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. So cheerful, joyful giving is willing, right? And it's based on what you already have. Why is that so significant? And why does Scripture point that out? Because some people who really struggle with giving to support God's work, they're typically thinking this way. Man, when I get that bill paid down, or, or when I've hit that level of savings, when I'm feeling really good about where I'm at, then I'm going to start giving. God's saying, no, it's based on what you already have, what I've already trusted you with, what I've already given to you. So the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. If you find yourself in the place this morning where you're kind of like struggling with giving, first of all, know this, that New Hope is exceptional in terms of comparison to other churches in the sense that I told you around the world, around the nation at least, eight to 12% of the congregation participates Here, it's like 30 to 40%. It's amazing, the participation level. If there's 600 people here on a typical weekend in in the last year of giving, there's been 300 families or individuals who've been giving to the church. So we have a really high participation level. But if you find yourself, you're in that place where you're not participating in giving, it may be for these three reasons. It may be that you have never before been challenged to do so. Well, consider yourself challenged this morning, okay? All right? Maybe you're feeling like you've not been challenged. I'm challenging you. This is how God presents giving. Here's the second one. Maybe you feel like the church doesn't need your money. Well, first of all, that's for God to decide, right? So you're going to have to go to God on that issue, and you're going to have to talk to him about your understanding of that. Maybe that's where you're at, though. You just feel like the church doesn't need it. I'm here to tell you the church always needs extra resources. Here's the third thing, though. Maybe it's a trust issue, and you feel like if you hold back your funds, you'll have more power, because money is power, right? That's the way we understand it. So God says maybe it's a trust issue for you, and you're struggling with giving up some of your power. Can I just check you on that if that's you? God cares for you, right? Okay. Okay. God cares for you, right? Okay, okay. I'll make sure we're good on that because if not, we're going all the way back to the beginning. God cares for us both in plenty and in want, even in times of great disaster. So God's ability to provide for you is not based on the Dow Jones average, is it? Dow dropped 200 and some points the other day. People are freaking out. God never freaks out about the Dow Jones average. His ability to care for us is not based on what happens on Wall Street. God is greater than Wall Street. God is greater than what you have in your bank account. And he cares for you. He says, I I just want you to begin giving based on what you have, not based on what you don't have. So trust me in that. Okay, so hear this last thought. We've got a God who's able to do things that we can't do on our own. We talked about grace being um, an element of something that God gives to us that we don't deserve. And then Paul went and linked grace with giving. And we find this issue of money to be so uncomfortable because we feel like somebody's taking something away from us. But God says, no, no, this is something that you get to do. It's not something you have to do. This is a privilege for you because you don't get to do this in eternity, church. See, giving is time limited. It has eternal consequences. But you get to do it now. When you're in eternity, you don't get to keep doing that. So you get to participate with God here and now in two specific areas that are time limited. In leading other people into the kingdom, and in giving to the kingdom, God says, I give you that grace. I give you that privilege. So if you find yourself struggling with this, go one step further. Maybe you find, like, I want to participate. I'd love to do that, but I really struggle with the strength to do that. Here's the last verse for this morning. 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Who's able, church? Right. The God of grace... The God who calls giving a grace is able to make all grace abound to you. Why? So that you always have all sufficiency in everything. Why? So that you have an abundance for every good deed. So you feeling like you lack the capacity this morning? God says, I'm able. The full power of your capacity to give is not found in fear. It's found in Grace. And God's grace is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, let's pray that way. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've revealed this morning. I think you've laid some things on some individual's hearts who really needed to deal with this issue, and I thank you for that. You've made your word come alive, and we thank you for that, and your Holy Spirit is present here. So we just want to honor you for teaching us. Whatever's been taught, whatever's been caught, it's come from you. So we ask that you would use it and that you would magnify yourself through it and that you would expand your kingdom. Use us, Father, as willing instruments who have said, we're just laying our life down and we want to be all that we can be for you. Use us in that way. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.